0: If you've got your uh, Bible with you today, go with me to uh, Genesis 2. It's been good to uh, worship the Lord together in singing, to open the Word together. We're going to be sharing in the Lord's Supper uh, together at the conclusion of our service today. And I'm glad we're going to uh, be able to, to do this together as a church family. And for those of you who may be guests with us this morning, we are... Glad that you're here. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2, and if you do not have a Bible with you, but you would like to follow along with us, there are Bibles that are in the chair racks there in front of you. If you kind of hunt around, you should find uh, one of those Bibles, and it's going to be easy to find today because uh, Genesis 2, Genesis is the very first book of the Bible, so you should be able to find chapter 2 fairly easily, and we'll, we'll get there in just a few moments. But if you were with us last week, you might remember that we started by being reminded of uh, a, a, a philosopher, or not a philosopher, a psychologist from the 20th century, one of the, one of the most influential psychologists. His name was B.F. Skinner, and one of the things that B.F. Skinner said was that the, the concept of human beings defended by the literature of freedom and dignity needs to be, in his words, abolished. There is no fundamental dignity to human beings at all in Skinner's world. Skinner believed that we are simply the product of conditioning, that we are the product of conditioning in that we have DNA that unfolds over time to make us the people that we are, or we're the product of conditioning and the families that we're born into, the nations that we are raised in, the time period that we live in. Of course, there are elements of truth to that. Uh, we certainly are shaped by our experiences. We are shaped by our families. We are shaped by our genes. There's no denying it. But Skinner saw us entirely as the product of conditioning. And if we are simply the product of conditioning, then it would follow that if, if we are as, as individuals are products of conditioning, then our relationships are as well. And this kind of viewpoint is reflected in articles like one by, the, by a, a woman by the name of Mandy Len Catron. This article is called, What You Lose When You Gain a Spouse. And in that article, she asks the question, what if marriage is not the social good that so many believe and want it to be? Now, if we are simply the products of our environment, if if we are simply cells clumped together, spit out by an uncaring, unfeeling, unplanning universe, then it would also follow that We're free to think about our various relationships in whatever terms we choose. After all, none of it matters because none of it's going anywhere. But if marriage is not simply a social construct, free to be formed, reformed, or abandoned altogether, then then this relationship is, is a creation category. And the Bible gives us this creation category as an alternative worldview rooted in the fact that human beings are not, in fact, clumps of cells spit out by an unfeeling, uncaring, unplanning universe, but that we are, in fact, creations of God in His image who possess an inherent dignity, value, and freedom. We are more than the products of conditioning. Last week I said I was going to draw three statements about God's creation of human beings from this text, and I would give three implications of those statements. So if this is true, then this. Those are the implications. And so we saw the first two last week. We saw, first of all, that God created humans with intentionality And that serves to highlight our value. We saw in the second place that God created human beings with responsibilities, which in turn highlights our purpose. But as I've already hinted at this morning, this divine design extends to us more than just as individuals. It extends also to our relationships. And if you're here with us this morning, and maybe you're not a Christian, and you're not sure what it means to be a Christian, and you've asked yourself the question sometimes, what do Christians care about relationships so much? Why do Christians care about the definition of marriage so much? Why does it matter at all? The answer is that in the biblical worldview, marriage is not simply a social construct of convenience, but a fixed category and an intentional creation. That's why we view it, disagree or agree, that's why we view it the way we view it. And so now in this third place today, I want us to see this truth in Genesis 2 about God's creation of human beings. We see in the third place that God created human beings with relational capacities. God created. Created human beings with relational capacities, or if that word capacity doesn't doesn't click with you, capabilities or abilities. We can see this in the verses that make up the conclusion of the chapter. I I want us to read these verses together. If you want to be there, we're in Genesis chapter 2. I want to read verses 18 to 25 with you. The Bible says this in Genesis 2, 18 to 25, then the Lord God said, She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So many interesting things in this passage of Scripture that we've read together this morning. What I'd like to do is I'd like to walk through this passage, and I'd like to make some observations with you. These are simple observations, but I just want to draw them out of the text and highlight them for you. If you're the kind of person that likes to keep track of how many things are going so you know when this plane is going to land, there's six observations coming out of here. So everyone gets a little closer to the plane landing But I want to make six observations here and then draw some conclusions from this. The first observation I want to make is that the Bible describes Adam's state as being alone. He's alone. And the text highlights this for us by the fact that God brings this whole animal parade before Adam. And Adam has the responsibility of naming all of these animals. And both Adam is realizing, and we, the readers of the text, are realizing that as Adam is going through this and naming all these animals, he's coming to the realization that he is alone. He does not have a a corresponding counterpart as he is looking at the rest of creation And, and God describes this state that he finds himself in as being not good. It's it's not good. And when we read that God looks at that situation and says that's not good, that ought to grab our attention. That ought to kind of grab you by the shirt and shake you a little bit because that breaks the pattern of what's been happening in these first two chapters of Genesis. If you're familiar with it, if you've read chapter one, you're walking through the whole process of creation, and day by day, there is this chorus, there is refrain, this refrain at, at the end of each day in which God looks at what he's made and declares it what? Good. He looks at what he's made and declares it good. And so it should be a great surprise to us when we see here Adam, uh, God look at Adam's state and describe it as not good. The fact that Adam has no corresponding counterpart is a situation that is not good and which God intends to rectify. That's the first observation. The second observation I want us to see is that God in these verses declares his intent to create a companion for Adam. And he states this intent in verse 18 of chapter 2. He says, I will make him a helper fit for him. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now, if we're not careful with these verses, if we're not careful, careful to read and understanding, uh, understand this carefully, this wording of, of a helper could plant Ideas about the inferiority of women in our minds from the very beginning. Ideas that the biblical text is not intending to plant. And there's even people, unfortunately, have that have, have taught this way. But we need to remember the controlling idea that's found the very first time that men and women are mentioned back in chapter one. The the Bible makes it very clear that both male and female, men and women, are all alike created in the image of God. Each one of us, male and female, are reflectors, are bearers of the divine image. We reflect God's image and likeness back to Him and to each other, and we both do it together equally. That's a, a controlling idea that's found when we're first introduced to men and women. It's also important that we understand the nature of this word helper. This word helper is used a variety of times throughout the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible. And in almost every instance that it's used, the word, that, that term helper is used to describe God. God himself is described in numerous uh, places in the Old Testament as a helper. Let me give you just one example of that. In Psalm 70, in verse 5, the author of that psalm says, But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help. That's our word showing up again. Uh, You are my help. Help and my deliverer, O oh Lord, do not delay. If the idea of being a helper implied some sort of inferiority, then the Bible would not use it of God Himself. And yet, this word is often applied to God in Scripture to describe the fact that uh, that that He responds to us in our poor and needy state because he has what we lack. We need him, we need God, whether we realize it or not. We need God because he has what we lack. And there is a similar idea being communicated here. Adam has a need And this companion that God is going to provide for him supplies what he lacks. It is that sense in which she is a helper. She's going to be fit for him. She's going to be suitable for him. She's going to be just right. She's going to correspond to him. The third observation I want to make as we look at these verses is I want us to see the significance of the way the Bible describes her creation. We've already, we've already seen that one of the unique features of Genesis chapter 2 is that it zooms in on a, on a particular aspect of creation. If we're reading through Genesis 1, it's giving the overview of everything that's created. Chapter 2 zooms in, and as it zooms in, it zooms in on one particular thing, what we might refer to as the crown jewel of creation. It, it, it zooms in on the creation of human beings. And the creation of human beings is significant because as we've already noted this morning and many other times, human beings are the only creatures that are said to be made in God's image and likeness. Now, God is a spirit. He doesn't have hands. He doesn't have feet. He doesn't have eyes. He doesn't have a mouth in the way that we understand it. But if he did, chapter two would describe the creation of the first man in very up-close and personal terms. The Bible says that God... Forms him out of the dust of the ground. It's evoking the image of a potter. That's a word that's used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe the work of a potter. And then it tells us that the Bible breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. And so Adam is described in unique terms. But here we see the creation of Eve in terms that are no less unique, One of the interesting features here is that we have the first recorded use in history of anesthesia. God basically tells Adam to count from 10 backwards, and he never makes it. He's gone. He's out. God causes a deep sleep to come upon Adam, and the Bible tells us that he takes a rib from his side to form the woman. Now, we could do a lot of speculation here about the significance of this, and lots of people have done lots of speculation about that. Some have noted the fact that, well, the rib is near his heart, so maybe it has something to do with that. Um, it's kind of unlikely, I think, because ancient people didn't think of the heart the way we do. In fact, they usually used the term bowels, <laughs> which, uh, which was closer to their idea of the expression of heart, which we would never want to do, if case, just in case. You're getting ready to fill out that anniversary card or that, that Valentine's card. Don't do that. Uh, stick with heart. Uh, there, are, there are people who have seen that the ribs are, are that which protects the internal organs of a person. There are people who have noted that when Jesus was on the cross, his side was pierced. Maybe there's some truth to those things. I, I don't know, and I don't know if the Bible really tells us the significance of why she is formed from this rib from his side. What we do know is that this companion, this help, this person who corresponds to him is taken from his very body to show the close nature of this relationship. I want to make a fifth observation to you. I want you to see the unified nature of their relationship. It is described here as a one flesh union. We have two people becoming one. And of course, this doesn't mean that either one of them loses their identity in this, their individual identity entirely in this oneness. But it does describe that their relationship is so tight, so close to one another that they can literally be described as one flesh. And it is paradigmatic of all future marriage relationships. What the, the text says is, therefore, a man should leave his father and his mother and, and, and be joined to his wife, and, and Adam and Eve obviously had no father and mother to leave. So it's exemplary, it's paradigmatic of relationships that are to come. Men and women are to honor their parents even into adulthood, Parents can be a great source of ongoing guidance and wisdom, but when a marriage relationship is formed, a husband in particular, the text says, has a responsibility to leave his father and mother and to use biblical language to cleave unto his wife. And they'll say the parents have a responsibility to back out and let that happen. So if you're a parent that's not doing that, that's a little free thing for you right there. I don't have anybody in mind, okay? Okay. Sixth observation, sixth observation I want to give you. I want you to just observe the perfect nature of their relationship. The last thing that we're told is kind of striking to us as as modern readers. It strikes us as as odd, and I guess it probably would strike ancient readers as odd as well in many ways, but the, the last thing that we are told is that they were both naked and there was absolutely no shame. One of the things that the Bible does in these opening chapters of Genesis is it uses that, the idea of nakedness, as a, a, to, to demonstrate innocence. And I just want you to think for a moment about how tainted our relationships are by shame there is not a relationship that you have that is not in some way a, a at some level a hiding of yourself from that person husbands you know if you you may be in a great relationship with your wife but even the best relationships, you know that there is something she's hiding. And the same is true, the other direction. There are parts of ourselves that we are ashamed of, that we hide, that we don't want the other person to know. But the Bible shows us a picture of the first. Man and woman in the first marriage relationship having a a perfect relationship because not only do they realize that there is... It's not just that that, that they know they have full acceptance with each other. It's not just that. It's that they have absolutely nothing to be ashamed of at all. That shame or hiding or guilt or embarrassment... It isn't even part of the equation because no such thing exists. This is why the next chapter is going to be so devastating. This is why your own experiences are so devastating because even in our best relationships, there are jagged edges, there are difficulties, there is brokenness, there is guilt. There is shame, there is hiding, but it was not so from the very beginning. We can see here that these first two human beings that are God's creation in His image are created from the very outset with relational capacities. And here's the implication that I want to draw out from that for you This morning, the fact that God created humans with relational capacities highlights our need. You may have not seen that word coming. What do you mean by that? Let's talk about it a little bit. Your capacities for relationship, my capacities for relationship that are built into us are not simply a cool feature. Having heated seats in your new car, cool feature. Not necessary. The wheels are necessary, okay, especially if you live in Florida. You don't need heated seats, Well, and yet we use them. <laughs> The wheels are necessary. Our relational capacities that we have had built into us by our Creator are a function of necessity. Adam was alone, and being alone wasn't good. There was nobody corresponding to him. And listen, you don't require a helper if you don't have any needs. Adam has need. Now, let me be quick to say, our relational capacities are part of being made in the image of God, but God's relational capacities are not a function of need because God has no need. God has eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity in perfect harmony and relationship. He is the immortal, invisible, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient God who needs nothing and no one. Yet he exists in relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit, and then makes creatures like us in his image who exist in relationship. But as creatures, we have needs in our relationship. and Marriage highlights our need. What would it, what, how would our perspective change as modern people if it was shaped by a biblical perspective? For us as modern people now, marriage is something carefully considered whether it is going to be an accessory to my life that's going to move me forward in the way it ought to. Well, no wonder we rethink marriage all the time. If marriage is simply... An add-on to my life, an accessory that helps me meet my goals, and of course we would define it however we wish. But God, one of God's purposes and intents for marriage from the very beginning is that two people would come together, and there would be a mutual meeting of each other's needs, where I see what you need and I give and you see what I need, and you give. And together we fulfill God's purposes for us. Now, of course, marriage has been broken in many ways by sin, but this is part of why it exists. And when you see a marriage that looks like that, even in the brokenness, it's still a beautiful thing. But let me provide one clarification about marriage. I mean, this, this text is primarily dealing with with the marriage relationship. But while the marriage holds Bible, in, uh, Bible holds marriage in high esteem after all, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse four says, "Let marriage be held in honor among all," we must not draw an unwarranted conclusion about marriage from this passage. And that would be that a person is incomplete somehow, if they are not in a marriage relationship. That if you're a man without a woman or a woman without a man, you are somehow less than. You have a missing piece. You are incomplete until you finally have someone to complete you. Now, there are certainly unmarried people who, who long for that and feel that sense of, of a missing piece, but there are unmarried people who also do not feel that. But if marriage was the ideal for every single person without exception, if If marriage was the biggest thing in all the world that you can do, then Jesus would not have told us that marriage is not part of the plan for our eternal state. If marriage was the be-all, end-all of everything, then Jesus would not have been single. He would have gotten married. If marriage was the end of everything, the ultimate achievement relationally in every person's life, then the Apostle Paul would not have recommended the single life in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 8, if every person was basically incomplete without a spouse, then the Bible would not raise the old honorable nature of the choice of the single life. So, Christians, let's remember that while we want to honor the institution of marriage, we must neither idealize nor idolize the institution of marriage. But this relational capacity that is built into each one of us applies, I think, more broadly than to just the marriage relationship. It applies to the relationship between the genders in general. Men and women, we need each other. In every area of life, whether you think that or not, whether you realize that or not, we need each other. The New Testament makes this clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 11 to 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. We need each other. We were created male and female in the image of God We cannot fulfill our God-ordained purpose on our own. We were created with a built-in dependence on each other to fulfill our purpose as human beings in God's creation, which means that we ought to respect and honor one another. Even our relationships in the church highlight our need. One of the things that the, that, that the Bible says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians is, is there's this metaphor given of, of the church as the body of Christ. And what can the eye not say to the hand? The eye's not supposed to say to the hand, I have no, what? Need of You. The fact that we can have relationships in church is not just a cool feature. It's a function of need. For us to be the people God has has created us to be and is forming us to be, we are in desperate need of eyes and feet and hands and ears and mouths all of us working together to make the body grow. The fact that we were created for relationship highlights our sense of need. And I've touched on this already, but I'll, I'll, I'll say it now again. Our relationships have been spoiled, haven't they? If you don't know... The next chapter, the human race, the world, God's creation is stained and spoiled by the entrance of sin. And now, our relationships become broken, and now we start exploiting each other in our relationships. Now we start using each other in our relationships. Now we start resenting each other in our relationships. Now we start competing with each other in our relationships. And so, our relationships in, in the church, and as men and women in society, and as husbands and wives, are experiencing the brokenness of sin. In fact, if I've been talking about some of these things, there's, there's no doubt in my mind that there are people here in this room right now who are in a difficult marriage or who have had a marriage end or in some sort of, of difficult relational situation and just the talk of relationships just drives the knife of hurt into your heart because our relationships are, are many times broken and difficult. There's one more relationship that I want to bring up this morning that highlights our need. And it's not a it's not our horizontal relationships with each other, it's a vertical relationship between us and God. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 verses 28 to 32 that marriage was always intended from the very beginning to point to something beyond itself, which is why marriage is not the be-all-end-all, all. why it, why it is, is not to be idealized or idolized. But the Bible tells us something very interesting about marriage. It tells us in Ephesians chapter five and verse 28, "In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Does any of that sound familiar? This mystery, the Apostle Paul says, is profound. But I am saying that it refers to Christ and church. Here's the revelation of this profound mystery, this one flesh union between a man and a woman in marriage was always intended to be a picture of the good news of the gospel, Christ's love for his people, the church. So it's no surprise that Jesus' first recorded miracle, turning water into wine, would happen at a wedding. Where our need most comes into play is in our relationship with our Creator. God did not create us to be independent beings, to do it on our own, our rules, our way. God created us with a dependence on Him. We, his creatures, the crown jewel of his creation, were meant to live a life of joyful dependence on him, but God's creatures made a declaration of independence with disastrous consequences. We said, no thank you. We'll do this our way. And for the rest of human history, it has been a story of humanity trying to meet our own needs by our own selves. So we provide for ourselves. And we create lives of meaning and purpose on our own. And we construct families and friendships to meet our own needs on our own. And we try to build a name for ourselves through the accomplishments that we can make. We make idols of so many things, trying to do on our own what we were never intended to do. And here's the amazing thing about God. This is the profound mystery. God would have been within his rights to say, all right, You want to do it on your own? Go for it. Do it. See how that works out. But the profound mystery of Christ and the church is that Jesus comes after us and pursues relationship with us. The Bible doesn't present a, pic- a picture of human beings running after Christ. It presents a picture of Christ running after his people. And he does so by the shedding of his own blood. It is a profound mystery that God would pursue His people in Christ. But that's exactly what the Bible tells us he does. And the very first thing that Christ does for His people is He restores our broken relationship with our Creator and makes it whole and right and new. And maybe there's somebody here this morning, and as you're hearing this, you're saying, okay, my relationship with my Creator is broken, and I can see all the things that I have pursued in vain, in futility, to try to meet my own needs and create my own meaning and find my own happiness, and I have gotten to the end of it and seen that it isn't working, but how is this relationship with my Creator restored? And the answer is not a book of all the hoops that you have to jump through the answer is much different than that. The answer is simply faith, belief, trust in the Christ who pursues at the expense of his own blood. If you will repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ, you will experience the reconciliation of your relationship with your creator in a way that cannot ever be broken. Then, when we are brought into a right relationship with our Creator, Jesus begins changing us in our relationships. And I've used that wording intentionally because that does not mean, the Bible does not give us the promise that every broken relationship, Jesus waves a magic wand over and fixes. There are some relationships that we have this side of heaven that are broken beyond repair. But what God begins to do is change us in those relationships. He begins to give us hearts that freely recognize our needs of others, and he reorients us so that we both take and give in ways that are pleasing to him and in line with our original purpose. We're going to share the Lord's Supper together in just a few moments. And when we eat the bread and when we drink the cup of the Lord's Supper, one of the things that we are celebrating together is the fact that our broken relationship with our Creator has been restored in Christ. We are celebrating the fact that God then takes people like us and He joins us together so we start experiencing real godly relationships. The Bible, the storyline of the Bible, begins and ends with marriage. We've seen the beginning, but now in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 to 9, John, the author of this book of Revelation, receives a vision. And he says, beginning in verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. What we are doing in miniature whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper is is looking ahead to the great wedding reception of eternity when we are forever joined with Christ, when we can see Him, and when we experience not just the restoration of all that's been lost in our relationships, but so much more. When we spend an, an eternity existing with one another with no guilt, no shame, no jagged edges, and no pieces of yourself to hide because the bride has been clothed in fine linen, bright and pure. That's what we celebrate when we eat and drink. So let's do that together this morning.